Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You you have to understand that in those days, studios were selling things that they couldn't make or decided not to make or they were on the shelf. But I think that changed, if I'm correct, after a movie called Home Alone that Warner did. And for whatever reason, they didn't make it. And I think Fox picked it up, had a big hit with it. So you cannot go now and get something from a studio unless they tell you, okay, go make it. Come back to me. I want to look at it. I want to first look to distribute it or not so they don't look bad. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. I'm going to introduce my guest today. Listen, there are so many credits I have to get to with this. It's like, bear with me. This is like war and peace. This guy is incredible. This guy was born in Beirut in 1951, and he's gone on to be one of the greatest film producers of our generation. A major innovator in international motion picture productions and financing and distribution. He's had decades of experience as both a producer and executive producer of worldwide blockbusters. And he can be characterized like his movies as an action-packed producer. He's released 36 motion pictures, which have been nominated for 16 Academy Awards and have made over $3 billion at the box office. He is largely considered to be the godfather of international film distribution and marketing. He is renowned for his talent of greenlighting projects that go on to become some of the biggest movies in the world. And he served as an executive producer on such hits as the Rambo series of films, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Basic Instinct, Total Recall, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, Cliffhanger, Chaplin, and Stargate. But before I say his name, I just want to tell you some of the quotes that he's famous for. Because I love these quotes. Whenever I've done a motion picture, I've always tried to make it a fun experience, especially when we were starting out. 
because it was really tough to get our first picture made. So if there's no fun, then there's no point in doing it. I'm not a dentist or a lawyer. Making movies is the only thing that turns me on. Independent film is difficult to produce no matter what you do for financing. There's always a missing piece. I think the road to becoming a producer is one thing. The road to becoming a director is more interesting. I find myself talking more and more to young filmmakers these days, and the one piece of advice I give, don't force it. If the material is good, the people in this town will know it. On producing, he once said, if it costs you $1 a day to open your eyes, you need to make $2. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Mario Kassar. What a great introduction, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> He's laughing now. This is so wild having you. You people have no idea. Like, literally, like, I have been after this guy for like nine months to get this guy on the podcast. I email him every week. Every week I email him. It's like, I'm in, uh, you know, I'm in Dubai. Okay, well, wh when are you coming back? I don't know. Next week I email him. I'm in london next week i email you, you're in lower attleboro massachusetts i don't know where you know but it's like you're all over the world like i just i don't understand how you can possibly have any kind of social life or family life without anybody telling you to pound sand with this kind of schedule like how do you how do you do it it's very difficult uh massachusetts i've never been actually, by the way. <laughs> uh, family life is tough but uh, i managed to do it yes i do travel a lot it's for business mostly. And uh, you get used to it. And then you try to come back home as much as possible and spend as much time uh, when you're home with your family. But my business keeps me going around the world. You've done so many things. We're going to talk about a lot of the things that you've done in your career. And, and this podcast is normally very inspirational. We like to tell about the journey. So, and I know this is your first podcast ever. So take me back to like, uh, whatever, a month before you ever had an idea to do anything in the entertainment business or the film business, where were you? Where did your family grow up? Uh, and, and how did you decide to get into it? And what were the steps that you took to get into it? That's an hour. That's okay. <laughs> uh, God. So basically, I was living in Beirut. I was born in Beirut. And then I was living in Europe. And then my father was in the film business. He was actually acquiring movies from Europe and releasing them in the Middle East, mostly. And then I was with him in Italy. I studied in France, in Italy, a little bit in England, uh, a little bit in Switzerland, a little bit everywhere in Europe. And then all of a sudden I decided to quit school I don't know how the American school and the French school system works. So I can't tell you when I could. I know I was 16. Uh -huh. And I said, you know, no more school for me. So I'm in other words, you dropped out of high school. Yes, basically. I was, I shouldn't say it, but I, I just didn't feel like continuing that. And I went and I said to my dad, you know what? I want to come and live with you in Italy and uh, help you out or start learning a little bit the film, the film business. I was very attracted to the film business. I used to love movies, watch movies, everything. And I went there and I stayed with him. And then I was watching 
all those Italian movies, the Italian Western, the Spaghetti Western, the Italian so-called uh, war movies, all done in Italy with all those Italian actors with American names. And uh, we used to buy them. He used to buy them and sell them. And all of a sudden I said to myself, okay, so I've done that. Now what? Maybe try another country. You know, this is, I've done that. So he moved to Paris. I said, you know what? I'm going to go try uh, Paris now. So I go to Paris and with all due respect to French movies that I, that I like very much, uh, I found that French movies were, uh, did not travel very well overseas internationally, like Southeast Asia or you forget the United States or UK or whatever. It was French movies are very kind of restricted to the French speaking countries. So I found myself very limited. And then I said, okay, you want to be in the film business, so where do you go? There's only one place to go, right? So it's Hollywood. So I packed my suitcase and I came here. How many languages did you speak at this time when you came to the United States? And how old were you? Well, I was, I think, maybe close to 20. And and what languages did you speak? I then? spoke because I was born in Beirut and Arabic was being spoken. My father is Lebanese, my mother is Italian. So... I speak Lebanese, which is Arabic. I speak French because of the schooling, English because of schools and I was in London. Uh, I could understand Spanish because I studied Latin, so it was easy for me. I do speak, I don't know, four or five languages basically when I came here, but I didn't speak such a perfect, perfect English. Like I, I mean, I understand it more now. I mean, I still make mistakes in my English, uh, but four or five languages. So you come to this country when you're 20 and do you have anything? Do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're living? Like, how do you, like, how do you do it? What happened is when I was in Europe, I was, uh, beside buying and selling movies to those, uh, I started selling the Southeast Asia. And then I met somebody in Europe who became actually my partner, Andrew Vina, who I met in, I think it was in Cannes, who was looking for somebody to find him movies for Southeast Asia, Hong Kong and, and whatever, mostly Hong Kong. And find movies that had already been produced and made, but they couldn't sell them anymore yet. No, no. Uh, pre-sale was a big thing in Europe. They used to do all those press books and glamorous photos and everything. Now and I want you to explain to our audience what pre-sale means because- uh, Pre-sale is very simple, is you do a very, nice presentation called a press book in those days they used to call it or press kit whatever you want to call it very flashy great photos all the action <laughs> scenes of a movie all the, it's like a mini trailer and in, on paper on paper and, and everything you, looks fantastic and you tell them this movie costs so much and it's great blah 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 and, and then and you say what the and, actors and that you, you want the budget is so much and you you pre-set it that means they're buying it before the film is made or what is being shot then the result of the movie is another story <laughs> So that's what, uh, where I met Andy, who was looking to, uh, he bought theaters, I think in Hong Kong, and he was looking to find somebody who helps him in Europe buy movies. And I said, okay, we got together, we agreed that I'll, I find him movies. And after a while, then he moved from Hong Kong to here, and I decided to come here, and then we got together here, and we said, okay, um, why don't we start buying movies, why don't we get movies from America, and sell them to the foreign, because there's a demand of that American. Uh, there was very few 
uh, American companies doing that, independent. Like the, I remember there was companies like Crown International or mm -hmm. the old Canon. I, I don't remember yeah. now. But when you sell movies overseas to the foreign markets, I, I, I think this is important for our audience. Like you're going to these different markets. You're going to like Africa. You're going to uh, in the UK. You're going to Australia. And you're trying to get as much money from these countries as you can. But a lot of times, as you know, there's not that much money uh, at these different countries. And if you just think that you're getting an offer from one country and you were to look at it, you'd be like, why am I even in this business? But then when you add up all the different markets, when you put them together, that's when it all comes together. Well, but, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. Basically, what you're getting at, that will be explained later in my, in my conversation with you, is that the foreign market... Is a is a big, a very big market put all together. That's right. Which the U.S. distributors, which they the the studios, they release it themselves. They basically have an office, a manager, it gets the movie. They really didn't have 25, 30 years ago a real great idea how important those markets were. So when we come from that, so we know what the what the market was. So when we came here, we picked some movies, and in those days. There was the Canadian tax deals. There was all those kind of... So there was a lot of movies being financed through pre-sales and a U.S. distributor. And you put them all together and you go to the bank with a completion bond and you get your money to make the movie. So we would advance them some money and we take the, the film, we make it look great. And then we go to MIFED, which was a Milan Film Festival, or Cannes. Explain, explain to our audience what that stands for. MIFED, yeah. Milan International Film Festival. Thank you. Uh, it happens in Milan <laughs> and then all the distributors come and then you have your little cubicle or whatever office yep, and yep, you put yep. your poster <laughs> yeah. and you try to tell everybody I have the best movie. It's like an I, exhibition hall. Exactly. I'm in booth 47. I'm right. Mario Casar. Right. And you make an ad, uh, please contact me. I'm in this hotel and this office and you try to sell your movie and you have your contract ready and it was a standard form of contract. And as long as you got your 20% deposit check, you, you felt great then you hope for your letter of credit to arrive, right? That's right. So, so, so but you're, you know, what's odd is you're, you're, you're 20 years old, you come here. And so uh, as you're doing and putting all this together, do you have anything? Like, are you living, like, are you living in a studio apartment? Are you living with friends? Like, how are you, you know, a lot of people are interested on this podcast, how people start, like Sam Goris, who's the president of Paradigm, he told me that his parents uh, sold all their possessions and bought eight one-way tickets and came here. And they didn't really know. They knew what they wanted to do, but they didn't really have a place to stay or whatever. Yeah. How did you, you know, you're 20 years old. You're coming to a, a foreign country, a Hollywood, a, a small fish and a big pond. Right. Were you intimidated? And how did you, how was your living situation then? Were you like, in, were you like comfortable or were you living check to check? Uh, I was not intimidated. I was actually living with an American girlfriend in Rome. So when I told her I was going, I wanted to move to Los Angeles, she said, great, I, I'm coming to, you can stay with us because I couldn't really yet still afford all car, apartments, you know, all the usual things to be able to live here. I didn't have much money. I used to make quite a few, uh, quite a good amount of money in Rome when I was doing my own business of buying and selling, but I was spending it the same. I mean, I was spending more than I was making, basically. I was enjoying my life. 
so my accommodation arrangement was at the beginning with my girlfriend at her parents' house. So you didn't pay any rent? Well, I was, no, but I was like buying stuff for the house and things like this. But that didn't last too long because then I wanted to just move on. But when I came you to... You to date more women? No, no, not, be, no, not no, move on, meaning I wanted to go live in an apartment outside, not with the parents and, you know, the whole family on my head. Got it. So, but basically I came also, before I came, I acquired a movie from Italy for all Southeast Asia, which in those days was called The Sicilian Cross, which I don't think anybody has seen that movie much. It was starring Roger Moore and Stacey Keach. Roger Moore from 007. From 007 and The Saint. And what did you acquire it for? Like, you remember how much money? Yes, yes. That that was, because that was really my beginning, to be honest with you. I remember that I paid on paper. $130,000 $130,000 for all. In Italy, they didn't know what really all of Asia was. They, they would write Far East. So it was Hong Kong, <laughs> Vietnam, Thailand, you name it was there, right? So they would put one word, Far East. And people would just go and sell to a guy in Hong Kong, whatever, the Far East. So you buy it for, let's say, 10, you sell it for 12, you made you $2. So I, I bought it for one thirty and... I, and they needed a 20% deposit, which I guess was $26,000, which I didn't have. But my bank account was uh, in Beirut, and my godfather was the banker, actually. So I, I, I bought it. I gave him a check for $26,000. I called my banker. I said, could you please delay payment on that check a little bit? Because <laughs> I have to go sell it now. And then I jumped on. The, and then, then I met Andy here, who I told you, my, my partner in Hong Kong. And he said, okay, we're partnering in this one. But I mean, I wrote the film and I did everything. So he partnered with me. Well, what was his responsibility? You did everything already. It's okay. I wasn't thinking that way. I said, he's in America. I know him from Italy. Somebody, better to be with somebody than just being alone in, in, like you say, a small fish in a big pond. So you go and you do something illegal. Not illegal. It wasn't illegal. What's, you what? tell him to delay the check. I, I just delayed a few days. I mean, that's not illegal. <laughs> I was going to pay it. I didn't say don't pay it. What happens if the movie didn't sell? That's well, we we're not we haven't finished the story yet. <laughs> <laughs> so and of course I come here and then then I jump. I remember that those days it was Pan American. I jump on the plane and I go to Hong Kong and a couple of countries and I sell it for. <laughs> trying to remember the price. I don't know. I think I two fifty or two. I, I don't. I doubled the money. You doubled the money. Yeah. And of course, I got all the checks, which immediately were FedEx to the bank, <laughs> you know, and then that's how the first income or the first base of the financial situation of the Mario and Andy or whatever started. And then from there on, we said, okay. Then I went, rented that apartment or I rented a house actually somewhere on Beverly Glen. And then we made this partnership and we made a company and we said, okay, well, this works. Let's you, now. You, you named the company Carol Co., right? Or what? Yes, we, we named it Carol Co. What was the significance of the name? Zero. It's a name that means nothing. In fact, it's very strange because when, when Carol Co. went in chapter 11 and then was dissolved, I, said, I was so close to that name, I liked it. I said, can you give me back the name? They wouldn't sell me back the name. And somebody bought that name, actually. <laughs> I don't know why. And it means nothing to anyone except to me. But anyway. So that's, that's how Carico started. And then I said, okay, now we know what the point is. Let's see whether they have films here and let's sell them for foreign. So we became a foreign sales agency of American Canadian movies for the foreign. And we, we got some really 
bad movies for sale, but we sold them very well. And then one day we just sat down and said, and I said to myself mostly, I said, you know what? I'm doing all this. I'm really trying to tell everybody. I'm lying a lot. I'm telling them how great this movie is because I have to sell it at the best price possible because my, I was on a commission, so I would make more money. And then I'm in the hands of this either Canadian producer or whatever, and whatever he's giving me and I'm giving to the distributor, I'm being blamed because I was the middleman. So I said, if I'm going to be blamed, I might as well do my own movie. Let me be blamed for what I'm doing instead of what I'm selling. And then we got to, at that point, we were given something called uh, a book and a screenplay called First Blood, which was really the origin and the start of this whole saga. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And now before you got First Blood, the the book and the screenplay, yeah. approximately how many things had you been submitted in front of you that you had in your office on the floor and bookshelves, that the things that you were considering at the time? Well, we were mostly looking for movies to sell for the foreign. I, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of really bad movies that we were offered and we sold. And uh, that's what pushed, uh, pushed, pushed us to start thinking about production. And then we said, when we said about production, then we got very um, kind of carried away. And we optioned a book called Shogun. Imagine for somebody who never did anything, jump and option a book called Shogun. It's like a major enterprise. And obviously we, we never ended up doing it. It was too much out of our league in those days. So when you when you got the book and the screenplay for First Blood, what did you pay for the rights for that book and that screenplay to, right. to produce it? And in your mind, when you had your line producer put the budget together, what did they tell you the budget would have to be, what you would have to raise to make the movie? Well, first of all, you, you have to understand that in those days, studios were selling things that they couldn't make or decided not to make or they were on the shelf. But I think that changed, if I'm correct, after a movie called Home Alone that Warner did. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they didn't make it. And I think Fox picked it up. That's and right. They had a big hit with it. So you cannot go now and get something from a studio unless they tell you, okay, go make it. Come back to me. I want to look at it. I want to first look to distribute it or not so they don't look bad. I mean, I understand them. But in those days, they were selling stuff. So when I read that, and I'm... Had nothing to do with Vietnam. I didn't even know about anything much about the war or Vietnam, but I liked the book very much, and I like the one of the screenplays that I uh, read. 
And there was a guy at Warner's was handing this. I think his name was Jack Friedman, if my memory is correct. And we went there and we said, would you like to sell it to us? He said, uh, for him, it's like the bell started ringing. Oh, here they are, the two foreigners. Uh, let's see what we can get out of them since we haven't been able to make it for the last seven or I don't know how many years. And he said, we, I think he has, I don't know, 350 or 380, something like that. Actually, I was shocked that we said yes. And we bought the rights and with the rights came maybe 10 different screenplays because they re, they wrote this book, this the book they had draft for, if I remember, McQueen, Newman, every big act, Harrison Ford, you name it was, they wrote it for, and it never happened. So obviously we didn't use any of those drafts, but, but we owned them because we bought it part of the book. And then we read it and we had, as you said, I, I only knew two people in town in the production directing business. We just arrived. I knew a director, a Canadian one, uh, his name was Ted Kotcheff. And we were friends. I used to go to his house and make pasta and he speaks French with me and it was, he was a nice guy and everything. And I knew uh, a writer called David Geiler, who's still a friend of mine. And who else did I do? I mean, I knew very few people. And then I said to myself, uh, I really like this. And this is my partner and me, obviously. We said, you know, this would be perfect for Stallone. I mean, this is like designed for him. That was our vision. And then uh, the budget was made. It was like, if I think it was about $18 million. And obviously we didn't have anything of that $18 million. So here you go again, my godfather in Paris. He would now <laughs> to Paris. And I fly to Paris and I say, uh, you know, I need, I need to do now something different. He said, what is it? And he's seen me through my, when I was a kid growing up, how I, I was doing business and doing okay. So he had kind of a trust in me. I said, I need some money. I'm going to make my first movie. He said, but do you know much about production? That was a little white lie. <laughs> I said, yes. And he said, uh, and you think you're going to be making money with it? Because I made a couple of little deals with him before. I said, oh, yeah, for sure. He said, but what is it that you need? And I actually looked at him straight in the face and I said, $18 million. <laughs> and I was waiting that, you know, be thrown out of the window or the door or whatever. <laughs> And actually, he didn't blink much. And he said, um, so are you sure of that? I said, yep. So he says, okay, well, go speak to the manager outside. Tell him to open for you uh, an, uh, an open letter of credit, meaning with no restriction. It would be open to a bank in California. It was called United Bank of California, actually, where I could draw without any condition. Like if I needed a million, I would just go there, draw a million. And I went out to the manager in the bank in Paris, who was smoking three, four cigarettes and stressed out papers and this and that. I said, okay, can you open now, please, immediately, urgently? I got to run to LA, uh, $18 million. And of course, he thought it was a joke. He just he said, Mario, please, I'm busy now. Why don't you come back later? I said, no, I'm very serious. I just left your chairman. And he wouldn't listen to me. So I said, okay, I picked up the phone, you know, and I called the chairman, the extension of the chairman. I said, okay, nobody's listening to me here. And I gave him the phone. And all of a sudden, the guy turned white because obviously he got screamed at. And boom, the letter of credit was opened. 
Now so, I come back here with $18 million in the <laughs> bank with the rights of First Blood, the book and the screenplays. With, uh, I go to Ted Kotcheff. I say, I want you to direct this. Oh, I love the book. Yes. I go to see the manager. Every time I go sometime, in this, it's me and Andy, my partner. We go see the manager and the agent uh, of Stallone. It was, there was, the lawyer was Jake Bloom. Yeah, and there was Herb Nanus in in those days. Of course, Herb Nanus. We were just we were just at a movie that he just produced. Yeah, and we said like Sly for this, and they asked us at that time. He did Rocky, but then he did I think Fist and Paradise Alley. So it was like this, and maybe a little down or whatever. But for me, it was perfect for the role. To be honest with you, at least my vision. And uh, they asked us for a prize in those days. Uh, they asked you for a price. Yeah, they didn't. Act. They didn't tell you what he wanted. They asked you to make an offer. No, no. They they basically said, "For this is what he would. This is what he want. This is the price to have Sly in the movie." Basically. What did he want? I don't know if I. I mean, this. I think we should keep it. Okay, no problem. I mean, it's unfair to the actor. No, no problem. No problem. You know, but it was it was uh, quite a quite an amount. Not a huge, but quite an amount. Maybe probably more. Or what they would have asked the studio because we were the foreign two independent guys, right? Okay. And obviously we said yes. So now we have Stallone, we have that Kalchev, we have the writer. And mm-hmm. now we need the, the other part, which was to play the famous uh, Colonel, um, what's his name? Hartman. No, no, no. The guy who ended up being played by Richard Krenner. Yeah. And in those days, there was a movie that was called The Nimitz with Kirk Douglas. And it was pretty big foreign. And everybody in the foreign wanted Kirk Douglas. So I had to fly to San Francisco. He was doing a play with Burt Lancaster. I watched the play. I'll be very honest. I was suffering for two and a half hours. <laughs> uh, because I wasn't really looking at the play. I was thinking, how do I go and speak to Kirk Douglas and tell him about Will he play the part? Then I go in the in the back room, whatever. In, in, when he finished the play in the in the room, and he knew everything about the book. He said, "I love the book. I love to do it." Blah blah blah. I said, "Great." Now we have Kirk Douglas, we have Sylvester Stallone, we have us. We make a great ad. We have the money to make it. We uh, we had our line producer, uh, we, which we worked many movies after with it. His name was Buzz Feichens. We make the announcement. We go to to Mifed, the office, the posters, you name it, and nobody would buy a country <laughs> or a, a village, not even a country. <laughs> they wouldn't buy anything. And I said, "My God, what's going on here?" So I would call every once in a while. I would get a call from my bank and said, "So how is it going? Great." <laughs> I want to hold on. This is so good. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to wait a little bit. I think I'm going to get more later. Honestly, it's another big white lie. And then we come back and now we're preparing for production. And we, we were thinking, you know, Ted Kutcher, Canadian, let's go shoot in Canada, which ended up shooting in Canada. And Canadian taxi, of course, the Canadian taxi never happened. And then we get to Canada. Everybody's there now. Before the the day we start shooting, because in the book... But you're shooting, but nobody wants the movie. Yes, but, but I had the money. I'm doing the movie, whether they want it or not. I'm doing the movie, period. I was committed to do the movie. 
even though it's 18 was no turning back there was no 18 million dollars on the line 18 million on the line i believed in it i was going for it period the message here is tell white lies and you'll be successful no do what you believe in sometimes a little white lie is not a big deal it's not really a, such a bad thing about telling i'm holding on the movie maybe subconsciously that's what i meant but i mean i couldn't say to the banker who just opened an 18 million dollar credit line saying you know, nobody's touching the movie. It's not a very <laughs> nice thing to say, is it? Before we, we, we start production, the night before you do this party for the cast and crew, whatever, Kirk says to me, and remember, because in the book, Stallone, the character, John Rambo, dies. He said, remember, I'm shooting, I'm killing him at the end. Well, didn't he read the screenplay? The screenplay didn't have you killing him. But he said, that means fix it. I'm shooting him at the end, basically. Oh. And... My first movie, I don't know what a sequel is. I don't know what a franchise is. I don't know anything. I'm making my first movie. I'm lucky I'm making a movie. <laughs> so I said, uh, fine, that's what the book says. You know, I don't have a problem. So I go to Sly, uh, Kirk says you die at the end. And Sly gives me the look and like, don't waste your time. Uh-uh. I said, but that's what the book says. He said, have you seen Rocky, Rocky 1, Rocky 2? You know what franchises, you know what sequels are? And I said, yeah, I've, I understand what you're saying, but I said, okay, now I gotta go speak to the director. So I go to, to see Ted and I said, Ted, you have to work this out because one actor wants to kill the other one. The other one doesn't want to be killed. The book says he <laughs> dies. I'm in the middle, I've got $18 million. It's snowing when it's not supposed to snow. It's, it's, it's a big mess here. And I have $18 million on the line here. Now they're no longer 18 because money is being spent. And then, so we're having this party and Ted said, it's okay, I go speak to Kirk or whatever. One hour, two hours, three hours, and then he comes back. He already drank every bottle of wine in the, in the place. <laughs> and then he comes back and I see a smile on his face. I said, okay, he, he did what he's supposed to do. And I look at him, he said, like it's done. I don't have to worry about anything. So the next morning, 9.30, maybe even earlier, I don't remember now, it's many years ago, I got a phone call. Mr. Douglas is on his way to the airport. I said, excuse me? <laughs> I said, yeah, he just took the limo and went to the airport. He's going to LA. I said, what do you mean he's going to LA? He's shooting here in Hope, Canada. <laughs> no. I said, what happened? He said, he went to the trailer of Stallone. He told him, I'm gonna, of course, I'm going to kill you at the end of the movie. And so I said, no, you're not. And the guy took the car and left. <laughs> and then I had a big argument with the director because obviously I don't think that conversation went very well that it's supposed to go very well. And then we got like totally crazy and we called every agent in LA. We said, we don't care who it is. We don't care how tall he is. We don't care how fat or short he is. We don't care about anything. We'll wait for the guy at the, at the airport to fit him. You send somebody now. And lucky enough and lucky for him, bless him. He was a great guy actually. Richard Kenner was available and came <laughs> over. He got fitted, done, boom, straight to the scene. Killing, no killing. He didn't have any problem with that. <laughs> and we went and we finally, slowly, slowly made this movie with every problem you can imagine. I mean, for us, it was everything was a problem because we're not used to all this. And we did it, basically. We shot it. You shot it? Mm -hmm. And why don't you tell everybody the process from after you shot it until it grossed $120 million. Right. So after we shot it, I remember I was not in Canada at one stage, but I got a call from Andy who says to me, we're watching the first cut 
I mean, the first assembly. Uh, you should come and look at it too, because I was I, I traveled for some reason, and then I came back. I said, "This is for me. This, this, I know I know what's there. I know it's going to be reduced. I I can see the movie." But apparently, the apparently I think Sly was not too crazy about it, or something like this. Uh, I don't know. People were like nervous and whatever re other reason that I don't really want to go into details. Uh, so I said at one stage, I'm not too worried. Let's let's just finish the editing and whatever. But still, nothing was sold. Still, this movie was unsold. And all the money almost spent. Uh, then we come back to LA. We cut. We put together like 10, 15 minutes of the movie. We start showing it to studios. Yeah, you know, you just put all the action. We know how you work. You put all the action together. You make you make it look great, but that doesn't mean the movie is great. We're gonna wait. So we got all those negative things all the time. So you're still getting passes. Getting passes, continuous passes. So then I look at Andy one day and said, you know what? Let's go to the editing room. Let's cut down. Let's cut together 55 minutes. Put effects, temp score, you name it. Because even if the rest of it is like widescreen, and if they like what we've done, they'll buy it. You know? And we spend like hours, sleepless night. Da, 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 we, and we put it together. Where did you come up with the 55 minutes? Because it was a magic number in my head that... 15, 20, 25 minutes, they can still tell you, yeah, and the rest is nothing. The rest is two people having dinner for an hour is boring. And 55 minutes, there's not much they can say. That's almost the movie, you know? I said, that's like almost, you have 80% of the movie. So you do that, and then So we do that, and we spend like in those days $250,000 or something, which was not budgeted for. Are you over budget at this point? Uh, probably a little bit. Probably a little bit. Because I really don't recall exactly all the numbers. And then we decide to make a screening on, on which Boulevard? There's a theater that they just remodeled. I don't remember the name of it. It was across the street from a rest, Italian restaurant called Orlando Orsini. Mm -hmm. And we invited everybody, every studio had every foreign distributor, everybody in the world. It was a virgin movie, untouched, unsold, nothing, to the screening. And... They all came with the 55 minutes. Of course, everybody was very nervous. Sly came with a suit and everything. All they all getting ready for this. And then the film starts and all of a sudden the film ends. And they all stood up and I actually, seriously, they clapped for about 20 minutes. So my God, I said, then we do have something here. So I was right, we were right here. So on the way from the theater to the restaurant, which is about five, seven minutes walking, not even, we've sold all the foreign at astronomical prices. Then we sold in those days, um, I don't know if it was HBO or Time Live, but there was, there was those cable things on its own, the TV on its own. Everything was separate. We sold every right separate. And then we ended up making a deal with Orion for the U.S. theatrical only, a very good distribution deal for us. And it was like the magic number started flying in. And of course, I couldn't wait to pick up the phone and call the banker to tell him I was right. 
and then the movie opens, obviously, and uh, it was what it was. You know, it was a hit, and everybody loved it. And then, of course, after that, it was easier to make this the, the number two or the number three. But it was really a year and something of blood, sweat, and tears. But I wanted you to share that story because I know we took a long time with it. But, I mean, for our audience, it's just an amazing thing. You know, you start with nothing. You're coming from Beirut. Right. You're basically living in your girlfriend's house with her parents buying the medium which i didn't even know what it was it was a condominium condominium. and basically buying them supplies doing everything you can you're telling whatever light white lie you can to get to where you want to go you get an 18 million dollar line of credit when you have essentially nothing Mm -hmm. and you go out and no matter what everybody tells you no and you just say, fuck it, I'm keeping going. Everybody says, no, you keep going. And it's just the persistence the that you have. It's point no return. You, you, you go for it if you believe in it. I mean, I, I don't think all movies happen like this. I don't think everybody should do this. I mean, this is the way it happened to me, and that's the way I did it. And it worked out. I mean, there's a lot of things that are maybe, which I think it's luck, it's guts, it's feeling. I'd rather be lucky than, you know, the genius. I want to be lucky every day and not, not a genius. No? Well... Uh, first of all, you are a genius. And Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You weren't lucky. You worked hard and you were persistent. Yeah, I like people that are persistent. I mean, they, they, they want to do it. They want to do that thing. And if they, if you were not persistent, you wouldn't see me here today. So it's good to be persistent. And I am very persistent. And that pushed me to do it. And I was actually at a point of no return. I mean, I believed in it. It's, was, it's like make it or break it. Either you're going to make your movie. And so what? If it doesn't work, so a lot of movies don't work. So, um, because, you know, there's so many things that you've done, rather than go through the stories of each one or whatever, I'm just going to name some of the movies that you've worked on. Mm. And if you could just tell me one story that like is the, you know, a great story about that particular process or the movie, that would uh, mean a lot to me. Um, there's a movie that I've always loved and I, it's probably out of all the movies you've worked on. It always grabbed my heart and twisted it into a balloon animal was Music Box. Yes. 
uh, where Jessica Lange played an attorney who yeah. defended her father who was being def- uh, accused of Nazi war crimes. Yeah. And then she goes across the world and finds a music box that contains a photo of her father uh, with a gun pointed at a young Jewish boy. And she realized, oh, my God, I got my I got my father off. Right. He's free man. And now I know he's guilty. Right. I get chills thinking about it. Do you have a story or something how that movie came together? Well, the uh, this movie was supposed to be produced by, if I remember, Erwin Winkler. He was attached to it to produce, and he was not here. He was somewhere in Europe. And I don't know how I got hold of the screenplay, and I read it. It was an amazing screenplay. It was so touched. And my partner is Hungarian, actually. And I, when I read it, I, I called Andy in Hungary. I said, Andy, I'm going to send you this. Read it. It's very, very good. And Winkler happens to be in Paris uh, at that time. After you read it, and if you agree with me, fly to Paris, meet with him. Let's make this movie. And um, they met, they met, and whatever. And Winkler said, "Okay, fine, let's make it." We we were providing the financing of the movie, so we had nothing to lose anyway. And uh, and we ended up with Costa Gavras as a director. It was, I think it was a great, great story, but somehow it did not, uh, it did not in, in the box office uh, international or here, it did not translate the way it should have translated. I don't know, maybe because Costa Gavras being the way he shoots his movie, being a little bit uh, European in a way, maybe people looked at it more of a European movie than, than an American movie. I don't know. But that movie deserved more of what it did. It's a fascinating story. I agree. And for those of you who've never seen it, just go on Netflix or wherever and watch the movie. Uh, Angel Heart, if I'm not mistaken, this was a movie where there was, God, I hope I don't say the wrong thing. There was a a, a girl who was a Cosby kid, Lisa Bonet. Lisa Bonet and she right. was, all, you know, all my life I knew her as this little girl on Cosby. Right. And now she's in a movie where she's not a little girl she's anymore. not a little girl anymore, yeah. Talk about that. I, I read that screenplay. That screenplay was on, actually, I met Anna Parker in, in Cannes when... They were really. They were uh, showing um, the the movie in Turkey. What's the name of it? Uh, um, about the drugs, uh, something express. Midnight, uh, Midnight Express. Midnight Express. Yes. With Brad. Uh, With Brad. Uh, ha- ha- Brad Davis. Brad Davis. And I loved his work. I mean, I, I loved Alan Parker. Any he could do anything. So and he wrote Angel Heart, and it was owned by. Uh, a producer in those days that was running around doing uh, buying all kind of books and I called uh, Elliot Kastner. And I read it and I said, oh my God, I, I, I need to make this movie. I want this movie badly. So I call Elliot who was, I, spe- I speak to, um, to Parker in Cannes. I said, I, I got to do this with you. He said, well, it's Elliot Kastner. I, I can't do nothing about it. I said, where's Elliot now? I said, he's in New York. I call Elliot. I said, hi, how are you? I'm Mario, blah, blah, blah. Uh, can we come and meet you? Elliot is the kind of guy, uh, kind of like in, in a very professional way. You give him the right price, he sells, he moves on, you know? And I flew to New York with my uh, with Andy and my lawyer. I don't remember in those days who was with us. And we met at 
somewhere. I don't remember if it was his office or the hotel or whatever. And we made that deal in about five minutes. He said, I want this. You got it. Goodbye. Thank you. And we got that thing and it, we had the money, I mean, to do it. And and we went uh, we went ahead and we wanted, uh, actually, Alan Parker wanted Mickey Rourke, which he got. He wanted Lisa Bonet, which he got. Then we told him, you know, we need some name also to help a little bit the foreign sales because we always, we were financing our movies by doing some pre-sales for the foreign and then the U.S. deal. And we got Robert De Niro. Uh, That's right. To play the devil, basically. That's right. And uh, which I saw not too long ago in Las Vegas. Uh, he was promoting uh, the one with Michael Douglas, the movie he just did with Michael Douglas. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, uh, you are the most expensive uh, one week actor I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and he loved it. He said, two weeks. I said, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> and that's, that's, I love that movie, by the way. I think it's a great movie. Total Recall. Total Recall. Total Recall was owned by Dino De Laurentiis. It's kind of a, it's a mentor in a way because he actually is the first one who opened very, in a very big way, the foreign market to big American movies. Because, I mean, there were no big A titles available after Dino, we came in, but he had like the King Kong, the Condo, Theaters of the Condo, all those things were not available independently. They were all studios. So he managed to do them like this. And he owned that and he was trying to make it for a while and couldn't, he had Patrick Swayze, I remember, or something like this. And I read that screenplay, I said, oh my God, what a great, great screenplay. And uh, we bought, we managed to buy it. And then obviously we were very friendly with uh, Paul Verhoeven in those days, who liked it. And then we said, okay, how about Arnold? So then we have Arnold, we have Paul, we have Totarico. I would love to see you in a conversation with Arnold. He's actually a very, very cool guy, very smart guy, very, very good guy to work with. Very, very professional, does his homework, knows everything. And then we argued a little bit about the budget with Paul because he wanted this. We said, no, we only can give you this. And we always end up between this and that. I don't think any movie is ever exactly on the budget. Even if they tell you yes, I, I, you don't believe it. L.A. Story. L.A. Story, I had a deal with uh, a company uh, called IndieProd, which was Dan Melnick and Alan Shapiro. And they were supposed to help Caraco bring some... Dan Melnick knew a lot of those big stars, and uh, bring me some A talent, A whatever, help me out a little bit. And I think when he brought in L.A. Story, he said, well, I, I have to give it to Mario as a first look because that's the deal we had with him. That's not the kind of movie Caracol does anyway. I read it in about 45 minutes. I said, this is a go picture. This ain't going nowhere. We say yes. <laughs> and he was like, are you sure? I said, yes, I am very sure. <laughs> and, and then we made it. I think it's a very, very funny picture. I really like it very much, actually. Oh, great. The Doors. Ah, The Doors. The Doors is a, the doors is a fascinating uh, thing. Believe it or not, Tom Cruise was actually in my building talking to Oliver Stone. We had a little dining area down on Melrose where we had our building. And he was, he really wanted to play uh, the, what's his name, Jim Morrison. And he was taking, he want, wanted to take singing lesson. Or, I mean, he really wanted it badly. And I'm looking at numbers, Tom Cruise, foreign, na, 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 na. and Oliver said, no, I think 
we should go with uh, what's his name uh, who ended up doing it Val Kilmer Val Kilmer and he was right in a way not because Tom Cruise is bad but I mean the look and the whole thing of Val Kilmer in, in the in the doors is amazing and it's a fascinating story I, I mean I love that so movie. you have to turn down Tom Cruise believe it or not how do you turn down Tom Cruise well I mean Oliver it was hard to turn him down but 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 we had to it's not turning him down I mean it's kind of saying sorry I don't know yes maybe turning down or replacing or it was Oliver's decision to be honest with you tell us our audience a little bit of the story about Oliver Stone that they would love to hear that gives insight onto the genius of the man but also the eccentricity of what you had to deal with Oliver is uh, yeah the genius like you call him and very eccentric and uh, I like I like Oliver Oliver has always like a little piece of paper in his jacket or his shirt and he comes to see you and he just takes it out and he's got all his questions and notes and he keeps on going and he puts the knife and he keeps on he likes to provoke and but you have to play the game with him you gotta go go and and, and play the same game with him and uh, I think he's very talented. I think uh, sometimes, like everybody, he can go from one extreme to another. Everybody does good. Everybody does bad. Everybody, but it's very interesting to work with him. And uh, he was, you see, you, if if you choose a director that is so passionate about making one of your projects then you're on board with the right guy, in my opinion. You know, you're not just taking a name because he's Oliver Stone, period. But if Oliver is there, like so passionate, even saying no to Tom Cruise, but I want Val Kilman, I believe in this, and I want and the music and this. Uh, now, now you know this guy is going to give you the best he can of something he believes in. But also you're, you know, you're relying on making as much money as possible from the foreign and from the uh, domestic right. rights to the movie. Right. And Tom Cruise is going to give you more money than Val Kilmer. Maybe he would have given me more pre-sales yeah. than Val Kilmer. But at the end of the day, I don't know because obviously I only we've only done it with one actor. We can't compare the movies now. Uh, everybody who's seen the movie was crazy about Val Kilmer the way he was. I mean, he looked like him. He acted like him. He was Jim Morrison for two hours. So I don't think the choice was wrong. No, I don't either. You know? Uh, a movie that was nominated for two Academy Awards, Rambling Rose. Yes, I like that little, little movie, I call it, compared to... It's not a little movie, but since everybody thinks I only make $100 million movies, they forget that sometimes I've done smaller movies. Rambling Rose is... Uh, Rennie Harlan came to me in Cannes and said, Maria, I have this small little movie that I really want to do this and that. And in, the, in those days, I also had this video company that I owned. And I read it, I liked it actually. And I met the, the lady who directed it. I said, okay, for that amount of money, let's do it. Why not? It's a good screenplay. What was the budget of that movie? It was less than 10, maybe. I, I, I don't remember. It's so that must time. have been like cab fare for you. Yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> Being sarcastic, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Was that sarcasm? I thought no, that was just... but, but I told you, everybody thinks I only, it's all the hundreds and hundreds of million dollar movies. No, I, I did do some lower budget movies, but people don't, do not really remember unless you make your homework and read, right? I've done a lot of homework. Oh, I'm sure. 
Um, so uh, tell me something about that movie coming together. That, like, that, was it just that was a, easy? That was it was easy. easy. It came to me, read it, liked it. Small budget, everything went smooth. Was uh, that the smallest budgeted movie you've ever done in your life? Actually, I financed for the video company uh, Reservoir Dogs with Tarantino. That was a very small budget. I don't remember now exactly the budget. I didn't know you were involved in Reservoir Dogs. Well, we had a company called Live Entertainment, which was our video company, which yeah. became Artisan, which is now Lions. Yeah. And sometimes I had to make some movies just to feed that company. Uh, and Reservoir Dogs was, Quentin Tarantino was working, I think, across the street uh, in, a, in, a, in a video store or something. <laughs> and he came to me and they said, uh, we want to do this, this, this. The budget was like almost nothing. Again, use your sarcasm about uh, not even a can trip, half a can trip, right? Uh -huh. And I said, fine, let's do it. I mean, it was a fascinating screenplay. So you said, let's do it, but you didn't produce that one or you did? Well, because I don't, you know, being chairman of a company, you don't have to have your name everywhere produced by and this and that. That wasn't important for me. For me was make sure the company was doing well, make sure you're making the right movie. Uh, Knowing the significance of that film after you saw it, do you kind of wish you had your name on that one? For me, it's enough that I that that it was us who provided the finance made it happen is more than enough. I mean, but you never did another movie with Quinn. You financed no. that movie for him. You help him out. He's in a video no, for store. For reason, there's a lot of some actors, some directors, or some actors I did, and then nothing else happened. I don't know. It happens, you know. They're okay at a certain level, and then maybe later they change or I change. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Clearly, it wasn't you. I don't know. All right. I want to talk about a few more movies before we ride off in the sunset here. Uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Mm. That's a big one. That is a huge one. That's I mean, probably the... How do you get... What I don't understand is... That's, the that's first story on its own. The that, first, that's another interview. <laughs> the first Terminator gets made. There's a producer. There's people involved. It's a fucking monster hit. It's a very interesting story. If you How really do you possibly it. weasel your way into that? With you can't. No white lie is going to get you into Terminator no. 2. Judge. No, no. There's no white lies here. There's, what, what here there is is... First of all, I met Cameron through a mutual friend called David Geiler, who told me, Mario, who actually uh, worked on the first Alien as a writer, and he knew James, and he said to me, you should read this screenplay called Terminator. They have a deal, with, Hemdale is doing it, and it was Orion, but James is, I think, is unhappy or something like this. And I read it, and I said, my God. I said, James, is there any way we can be involved? He said, I'm tied up to Orion. But I said, okay, if there's any hiccup, anything that goes wrong, if the sky changes color or whatever, you come right here. And obviously they did it. And, I, and he invited me to the premiere or the screening or whatever. I said, wow, that's exactly right. This guy is so talented, what a movie. And, and it was a small budget movie in those days. Uh, that was a small budget yeah, that was movie. It a $7, 8000000 million dollar movie. Terminator no, no, 2. Talking, Terminator 1. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, Terminator got it. Terminator 1. Yeah. Now, that what happened is, for many years, everybody was trying to do Terminator 2. But what happened is, when James divorced his wife, Gail Ann Hurd, he gave her 50% of Terminator for a dollar, part of his settlement, something like this. So now you have... 
the the rice are between Hemdale, John Daly, who died now, the poor guy, and Gail Ann Hurd, who owns the other 50%. So I called John Daly, who's an old friend of mine, very difficult to deal with, and I said, would you sell your 50% of Terminator? And he blasted me a price like, you name it, if, if you give me this, I'll, I'll sell you this, my car and my house. And he asked me for $10 million, half. And of course, he's like laughing, you know, because he was not expecting me to say anything. I said, okay, deal. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this.
and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.